Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal. And before we get going, I want to tell you that the Gentleman's Journal podcast is evolving in front of your very eyes. We're not reinventing the wheel, but we are adding a few more strings to the bow of the wheel, which is a mixed metaphor. And obviously, we're going to be working on that. But over the past five years that we've been recording this series, we've enjoyed talking to some of the world's most fascinating entrepreneurs, raconteurs, business people and CEOs. And it's been a lot of fun. And when we started, I rather hopefully described the interview series as like eavesdropping on the world's most interesting power lunches. Hopefully, we sometimes fulfilled that brief. But now, alongside all our usual meaty interviews with the big players of entrepreneurship and beyond, we're also going to talk about the things we tend to talk about at Gentleman's Journal HQ when no one's listening. We'll do deep dives on the new features in our magazine and on our website. We might catch up with our roster of brilliant writers to get the stories behind the stories. Or we might gather together some of the most interesting members of the Gentleman's Journal Clubhouse to debate the big topics of the moment and maybe a few of the small ones too. So forget the big business lunch analogy of yesteryear. In 2022, the Gentleman's Journal podcast will be a big, beautiful, delicious rolling buffet of new stories and new contributors. A kind of audio smorgasbord of intrigue, insider takes and upcoming talent from inside the magazine and beyond. And who doesn't love a buffet? I know I do. And to that accord, let's start off with Harry Shookman. He is one of our brilliant writers who has been sort of on the billionaire beat of late and he's going to be talking to us about the wild world of billionaire estate managers. These are the string pullers and choreographers who run the lives of the world's 0.0001%. It's a fascinating world. So enjoy and let us know what you think. Harry Shookman, thank you very much for joining us in our new audio odyssey. Pleasure to be here. This is a new format for us. I'm thinking about calling it Overheard at the Clubhouse because, as you know, that weekly email is called the Clubhouse email and it's audio, so it's Overheard at. Does that make sense? Couldn't think of a better name. That sounds like I'm insulting it, like you couldn't think of a better name, but no, I think I think it's a very good name. <laughs> Okay, good. I'm very, very glad to hear it. This first one is all about your new piece, which is about the world of billionaire estate managers, the kind of string pullers who we don't see, but are maybe the most important people in this kind of moving circus of these very, very wealthy people's lives. So uh, how did you first kind of stumble upon this um, this career? Where did the idea come from, I suppose? Well, um, my sister got me this incredible coffee book, uh, coffee table book for Christmas. It's called Generation Wealth. And it's done by this photographer mm. called Lauren Greenfield. Highly recommend it. Uh, it's this amazing collection of pictures of America's 1%. And I spent hours flicking through these quite haunting pictures of teenagers showing off their supercars and snorting speed in the lunch yeah. break at Beverly Hills High School. Um, and in this book, Generation Wealth, there's a small bit on estate managers. And Greenfield yeah. snaps this man called Brian Peel, who spends his days going to the many houses of his clients and making sure that everything works in advance of the family turning up. So say, for instance, the family is coming from their Manhattan penthouse to their Malibu beach mansion. Brian has to go around and make sure that the pool is clean, that the taps are running, the stairmaster works. And I was kind of hooked by this concept of the estate manager 
this kind of super butler that I'd, I'd never heard about. Um, this person who's in charge of all the service staff across all the clients' houses and is responsible for their functioning. But it's also, so it's in that world of, of the 0.1% that's usually pretty cagey and usually doesn't really want to talk about itself for good reason. But so how did you manage to even get in touch with these people and track them down and get them to talk to you, really? Yeah, so I, I was surprised that they were pretty candid, actually. Um, that they... Maybe it's the English accent <laughs> that helps. It, it, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure if, uh, if, <laughs> if they find the accent uh, charming... Uh, more than like billions and billions of dollars. Um, <laughs> that'd be pretty surprising. But um, I, uh, I, I thought that they'd, they'd have this uh, this kind of omerta, yes, protecting their their profession. But um, they were pretty candid about some of the tasks they'd had to do. They they wouldn't put names to 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 habits. Um, although one estate manager said she worked for uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson and uh, British golfer Nick. Faldo, another one who'd worked for um, Paul Allen of Microsoft. Um, but they're, you're right, their reputations are built on discretion. And so they did not want to say um, anything too disparaging. No, I imagine they're quite smooth, slick Californian people. They always seem to have a level of polish that, that English people never do. I don't know. Were they very kind of superficially charming, but quite brutal <laughs> i don't think they were su- definitely not superficial they struck me as quite down to earth actually they weren't like selling sunset yeah. uh estate agents okay yeah that's what i've got in my yeah, head yeah, yeah. no they, they they were very um very down to earth people who uh they sort of reminded me of um uh kind of american warrior generals philosopher generals who were kind of um you know not a word out of place uh super precise yeah. Uh, really, really um, in command of, of, of themselves and detail-oriented, um, highly organised in a way that I, I can only dream about being. So what we heard about the kind of the stairmasters and the taps being on and make sure the pool is clean, which are fairly pedestrian maybe, but this gets pretty crazy, doesn't it? Some of the things they're expected to do are well beyond the remit of your usual valet, I suppose. That, that, that's right. I mean... Um, some of the, 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 in theory, the estate manager job is meant to be um, sort of, they call it like a macro level uh, responsibilities that like you're in charge of all the, you know, dozens and dozens of staff that you might have across your properties. But um, the nature of private service, I think, means that if the boss, boss asks for it, you've got to do it. So I've heard about estate managers who are sort of dry, you know, riding in the, in the limo with their principal, as they're called, and you know the principal looked, pointed at a finance guy walking past and said, "I want you to go over and ask that man what type of shoes he has because I want a pair of them." And so you have to kind of get out and do these sort of what seems like quite quite demeaning roles, but obviously they're highly paid. Yeah. Highly paid. Um, you get some you get some pretty pretty demanding uh, tasks. Um, sometimes as well. I mean, one uh, one estate manager was asked to fly at a moment's notice to Mexico to try and find this this shaman in his rural mountain village or something, and and, fly, and, and come back for come back for lunch with the principal. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's before you get. Did they you know, find the shaman in that case? They brought the shaman. I mean, they, you, you can't. You know, no is not an option. So they had. To, they found the shaman. Okay. The shaman came back. 
I don't think it was a shaman. I reckon they went to the first village they could and said, who's your <laughs> oldest looking, what most wise and man? We're going on a lovely trip. Um, don't ask questions and say mysterious oblique things. And Sounds like quite a good job. Yeah, I'd love to do that. <laughs> be a kind of pseudo philosophical advisor sitting on private jets. There may be a job in that after this for me. <laughs> but what? So that you, you also mentioned about people buying the airspace above mansions, which is a baffling concept. Yeah. So I, this really speaks to what billions and billions of dollars can do to the human brain. Is uh, that you get involved? <laughs> you get involved in wanting to to spend your spend your wealth on some quite uh, outrageous things. So. One estate manager um, was asked by her principal to try and find out how to buy miles worth of atmosphere around his mm. mansion to protect his view. And uh, she didn't know, the estate manager, that this was even something that you could do, but had to sort of become an, e- an expert overnight in how to, how to buy out, not land rights, but sort of air, air rights. You know, she did it. Um, you know, there, wow. You know, that is an incredibly niche job. That is selling, not sunset, selling, I don't know, selling skies. <laughs> yeah. There must be official places you can go, right? To buy air? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like the ultimate fugazi. Yeah, I didn't, I I didn't, I didn't ask, but, but maybe there is a, a sort of a growing industry of, um, of scammers out there who are saying, I've got the rights to, you know, pre, primo real estate above, above Manhattan and can sell it to you for a good price. So what are these people like when they're, how do they feel about their employers if they're being asked to do fairly pedestrian or demeaning, as you say, tasks? Um, do they resent them? Do they like them? Or do they have a kind of Stockholm syndrome? Good question. Um, they are a really interesting type of person because on the one hand, they have to be very like bullshit, elbows out, um, goal oriented people. Um, but on the other hand, they have to be very um if you can't have an ego you know they when they they say you know you've got to leave your ego at the door and you know, it's not about yourself you, you are doing a type of service where you have everything that you do is to, to make your your boss happy so it takes a, a really sort of specific type of person i think to, to thrive in this job one estate manager said that um you know he would be happy for his boss to shout at him if he ever got angry um, because an estate, wow. estate manager is always delivering, you know, bad news that, you know, you, um, your infinity pool's flooded, your helicopter's not working, you know, your, your wife's run off with the pilot, whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and I guess you, you are always having to tell, tell these things to your, to your principal. And so he said, you know, I've had a principal's blow, blow their stacks at me. And as long as it's not getting personal, he, you know, he doesn't mind, which is when you think about it, quite a strange position to be in. Yeah. I mean, it seems all very counter to kind of modern workplace sensibilities where everyone's feelings of the utmost importance and especially the kind of the millennial way of looking at things is that, you know, you can't be rude to me just because you're richer or more senior than me. It it, it seems to resurrect um, this kind of, I don't know, an aristocratic mentality we haven't seen in this country for years where butlers are to be seen and not heard. Um, Or I think what the quote is, is they're meant to be interested but not interesting. It didn't surprise you that these that this kind of I don't know new hierarchy was emerging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I remember reading um, the Diamond as big as the Ritz, and there are these sort of scenes where the butlers are so involved in the lives of the principals, they are literally sort of putting their limbs in and out of 
flows for them. And, uh, you know, it, it, it feels uh, feels quite anachronistic that this stuff is still going on. You know, um, one ad I saw for an estate manager role said that the ideal candidate would need to understand old world etiquette, discretion and humility and would need to let things roll off your back, uh, which gives you some indication about what the job is, is actually like and the sort of personality that you have to you have to be in order to, to yeah. function in that in that role. That's basically an open brief, an open invitation to abuse down the line, basically. Verbal, obviously, abuse down the line. Let's, we won't cross the line there. Um, but yeah, so you, you, um, you spoke about how they got recruited as well and how people find them, because there's probably not a kind of grad scheme straight out of Harvard or Georgetown, is there, for these people? It's a specialist skill. How do they find them? Absolutely. I mean, it, I think it takes years to work your way up to becoming an estate manager. Most people come from, you know, long careers in private cuisine or tutoring, nannying, landscaping. Um, and to be honest, it seems like there is a grueling process to get uh, any state manager position with a deep background check that must rival MI6's background yeah. vetting. I mean, I, I spoke to this one estate manager who, a former estate manager who now runs a, a recruiting service who, who hires um, interviewers to do behavioral analysis of potential uh, candidates. And they, they do these interviews with them and, and try and you know, analyze their body language to see if they might be lying or trying to conceal some aspect of their past, like a a sacking or a conviction. Mm. It made me think of that um, SAS training course that they they put soldiers on <laughs> called Claridges, where, as I understand it, they put you in an empty room and, and beat you up as a form of sort of interrogation resistance. And that is designed to sort of separate the, <laughs> the weak from the strong. So is it well rewarded, though? I mean, what, what do these people see in it? Why do they want to do it? What do they get out of it, I guess? Yeah, I mean, the, the, on, on the first level, there's there's an enormous amount of money. I think you can earn, um, a figure I saw quoted was $300,000 as, as an annual salary. Um, there's also a taste of the high life. You know, you get to, to drive the Ferraris and ride in the private jets and uh, swim in the infinity pools. But um, one estate manager sort of described this, this ephemeral satisfaction of preparing a huge dinner party and laying out the flowers and linen and silverware all perfect and symmetrical and kind of a, uh, a pride in saying oh yeah I, I did that which was a bit sad for me to hear actually because as an outsider um, because you as the estate manager can't can't join the dinner you have to disappear you have to you know retreat into the wallpaper but uh, uh, it's sort of a hint about what what's in it it's in it for them so we seem to have put you inadvertently, Harry, in, in, in the last year or so, A Gentleman's Journal, on the billionaire beat. You seem to write about the, the 0.1% and their habits and proclivities more than anybody else. I can apologise for that, in fact. I don't know if you enjoy it. Yeah, I love it. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, okay. I just wish you had brought me a little bit Good, closer yeah. to private, private jet ownership myself. <laughs> Sadly, still very far away We need to talk about your race. <laughs> but I wonder how, how writing about these people, and you did a piece a few weeks ago about the kind of Dubai um, playboys, the jet set over there and their cars and their mansions and everything like that. And there's been a few about kind of, I don't know, dynastic families like the Redstones and Canada's kind of equivalent to succession. How does it make you feel about not wealth, but extreme wealth? Because the one commonality in all these people is that 
I mean, as Biggie Small said, mo money, mo problems. Is that right? Is that a fair summation? <laughs> I, I couldn't have put it better better myself. It does seem like, not to, to, to harp on about that uh, that book, Generation yeah. Wealth, I mean, it, it does seem like um, that it is a kind of a, a really good way of understanding how cursed the children of of 0.01 percenters are. Um, I mean, there was this one story in there about an interview with um, a teenager who said that her and her classmates had all had cosmetic surgery and they were so um, familiar with it that they were able to recognize the doctors who had given girls new noses and chins. They could say, oh, that's Dr. So-and-so or that's Dr. So-and-so based on sort of how familiar they were with the contours of, <laughs> of these new faces. Um, and and I, I mean, I used to, I used to think when I started this beat that being born into the billionaire class would be, um, you know, the best genetic lottery win. But actually, after kind of learning more and more about them, it, it does seem like it's a, it's a gilded cage rather than a, a beachside mansion. There, are, there's a, a, a story I heard about a um, billionaire hedge fund manager who never saw his family um, and his kids. Um, and the kids were sort of essentially parented by by his service staff, by these estate manager types. And so whenever the chauffeur yeah. happened to drop this uh, hedge fund manager off with his family on a rare weekend, the kids would run to hug the chauffeur before they greeted the dad. No. You know, you think that can't be worth it. Like if that is what billions and billions of dollars have uh, buys you, then what kind of price is that? So if I gave you the option now with a flip of a coin, to become, is that the expression I want? With the press of a button to become a billionaire when you wake up tomorrow morning, would you take it or would you turn it down? <laughs> I'd have to think about it. <laughs> I'd have to. I'd have to uh... And you can't give the money away for charity. That's yeah. easy. You go, oh, I'll buy a house and I'll give the money to charity. No, you've got to, you've got to live the billionaire lifestyle. Wow. You've got to suddenly be concerned about your gold Lamborghini and getting parking tickets outside Harrods. <laughs> It's a tough life. It is a tough life. I mean, uh, I think I, don't, I wouldn't want to be the first, uh, the, the first uh, schmuck to turn down a billion pounds. But um, <laughs> so I definitely hesitate. But then, uh, then I think about all the staff that I'd need to worry about, and all the, all the, you know, living, um, you know, my living therapist and uh, my my Xanax <laughs> budget. And I think I'd run through the billion billion pounds pretty quickly. Well, we'll have to see how this podcast goes. The sky's the limit. And then maybe we can all live it. But thank you, Harry. This has been our first episode of Overheard at the Clubhouse. I kind of want a jingle or at least a kind of radio presenter stab that goes, has a kind of clever voice and says something good. But thank you, Harry. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great fun. Hope to see you again. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.